We are continuing to make our way through the book of Exodus. We've been in Exodus for a while. It took them 40 years to get through the wilderness. It's not going to take us 40 years to get through Exodus, thankfully. If you would, turn to Exodus 20. And let us read the last and final commandment in the Decalogue that we have been studying. Verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity for us to gather each week to hear you speak and to connect with you through your written word. Lord, we want and need your spirit to bring illumination, to bring insight and discernment to what is being taught and to what is being said in your word. And Lord, we ask that you would use this passage and these words that you have written to help us conform to the image of your son for the good of your name and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we have been going through the Ten Commandments, and we finally made our way through the Ten. Um, And although this is the last commandment in the Ten of these laws given by God, it is certainly not the least. And one thing, as I was just re-studying all Ten this week and and going through them, it just dawned on me... um, The Lord could have said the opposite. He could have said things like, um, you know, he says, you shall not steal. He could have said, you know, you you shall do something. You you shall be generous or you shall. But there's there's an assumption behind these commandments that we're already doing what is right. And and as believers, because we have been transformed by Christ. We are already living differently than we used to live prior to coming to faith in the Lord. And so when we read these commandments, these commandments are wonderfully a reminder and a warning and a protection for God's people to continue to be transformed more into the image of Christ day in and day out. And so these, these Ten Commandments have great application and a great importance in our lives. Now, this Tenth Commandment is distinct from the other nine commandments. Each of the nine involves some observable behavior. You know, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. All things that are observable behavior. But this final commandment addresses only what God can see. An inward attitude of our hearts. You shall not covet. 
But it's not just a blank, you shall not covet. It's very specific. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You not, shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything. There, he, Moses is specific here as he's recording the words of God. This final commandment addresses an inward attitude of the heart. Only what God can see. It's the most revealing of the commandments, and yet its violation of this commandment is rarely, if not often, seen by others. We don't, we don't look around. We can see when maybe someone has stolen. We know when something's stolen, but we don't really know when someone's coveting. There's no, there's no coveting look on people's face. There's not, a, and there's not a lot in here. Of, I mean, in our church, there's, there's not a lot of coveting of somebody else's donkey. Um, no, one, no one in here worries about that. But coveting is a reality in our lives. A, a Sunday school teacher was discussing the Ten Commandments with her five and six-year-olds. After explaining the commandment to honor your father and mother, she asked, is there a commandment that teaches us how to treat our brothers and sisters? Without missing a beat, one little boy, the oldest in the family, answered, thou shalt not kill. (laughs) Now, what the teacher was trying to do was connect all of life to the commandments because of the broad application they have. The commandments are not just ten separate laws, but they are tied together. They, they rest on each other. And as we'll see in this tenth commandment, this tenth commandment is the one that's always broken in the other commandments. If you look at, you shall not steal. What is behind stealing? You've coveted something. If you look at, thou shalt not commit adultery. What are you seeing? Somebody's coveted somebody else's spouse. And on and on. And you, you will see that. So as we will see this, it's always broken before the others. All, all ten are tied together, but, but this tenth one is basic to all the other commandments. To understand this commandment, though, we first must be clear on what coveting is so that we can have a, so we can understand what this passage is about. When the, when the first nine, when the first nine speak of action, this commandment speaks of this contemplative, inner desire, inner attitude. It's a a contemplative sin that we see Jesus teaching in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. And he expands on this one particular, he expands on murder, he expands um, on adultery, and and as you see behind it all is this this contemplative sin, this, this inward desire, this inward evil to, to have something that someone else has. Now, other biblical authors help us to see the root of every sin is a desire in the heart long before there's an action. That, that we want something before, there, before someone steals, there's a coveting, like I said, for that item. James 1. James 1 is a very familiar passage that I think our church probably has been well taught, but one thirteen through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed. 
by his own desire. By his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Then in chapter 4, James tells us what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Philip Ryken said, to covet is to crave, to yearn for, to hanker after something that belongs to someone else. Now, that doesn't mean all of a desire is bad. If you have a hankering for pizza that you're coveting or hankering for ice cream you, you are coveting. No, no, it is, is a covet to crave, to yearn for, to hanker after something that belongs to someone else. The Oxford Dictionary simply says covetousness is the inordinate and culpable desire of possessing that which belongs to another or to which no one has a right. The list of things here in the covet is, just be aware, this list of house and and wife and servants and donkeys and and, and oxen, um, coveting is not limited to this here. It's it's not a limitation, um, but a view of how willing the heart is to want what it doesn't have. How willing the heart is to want what it doesn't have, no matter what it is. Notice that three times the word neighbor is used in here. So, so the Lord is making a statement that when we want something, we covet something, it's typically it's what someone else around us has whether it's in society or it's in the local church. And this, these Ten Commandments are not written to society at large. Who are they written to? They're written to a community of God's people. They're spoken by God directly to His people, the people that He has saved, the people that He had brought out of Egypt, the people that He rescued, the people that He calls His own, the people that blood was shed for, that they might be freed, these people who were enslaved and are no longer enslaved, these are the people that these words are spoken to. Because they, these words are designed to protect God's name and God's honor, and they're designed to protect God's community. They're, prote- they're designed to protect us. And so when we read this passage, we see the word neighbor, it's to help us to understand that coveting is most impactful in community among us. We just look around and we desire, we want, we covet what someone else has. 2017 is clear that coveting is primarily about craving and wanting and demanding something that that your neighbor has that you don't have. And that's the starting point. And like all the other commandments, when we move to the New Testament, we begin to see coveting expanded and see it in a much broader area. Now, the Westminster Catechism, written centuries ago, speaks of this. It says, 
it summarizes the Tenth Commandment. The Tenth Commandment requires full contentment with our own condition. It requires full contentment with our own condition. Now, just on the side, when you know you are not content with your own condition, the best word to describe would be the word complain. You complain. This bed's too soft. This bed's too hard. This bed's not just right. I didn't want spaghetti for dinner. I wanted steak for dinner. I didn't want vanilla ice cream. I wanted chocolate ice cream. I wish my kids would fall asleep when they're supposed to. (laughs) You get how easily we can complain. The Tenth Commandment requires full contentment with our own condition, with a right and charitable frame of spirit toward our neighbor and all that is his, and forbids all discontentment with our own estate and all inordinate notions and affections to anything that is his. What the Tenth Commandment requires is something we can often find hard to attain. This final commandment is not about not just not coveting. It's about being content. Being at peace with your, as the, te- as the Westminster Catechism says, your state, the, the condition of your life, the place that God has put you in. It's being content with those things. It's, it's being content with God's providence in our lives. How and when he provides the things we have or the things we don't have because he has yet to provide them, that's what we're called to be content with. And so let me give you a three-part explanation of coveting and contentment. And part one is the essence of coveting. Coveting, it's a serious and significant problem in our world today. Commercials are specifically created to make you and me feel discontented with what we don't have and often jealous or envious of what our, our neighbor has. It, it, and it even makes us discontent with what we do have. You think about that. HGTV commercials make your house seem like a broken down shack compared to your neighbor's. But then you call Wayfair. Because they have just what you need. And they'll ship it free. And in fact, it's 2 p.m. I'll be sleeping in my new mattress by 8 p.m. tonight. The car you're driving, it's a three-year-old clunker compared to your neighbor's brand new luxury car that costs a house payment. How, how can you go another day without one? Movies portray envy and jealousy that, that rears its ugly head when, when the main character who is unmarried has all these friends who are married and all she does is pine away about being married. Life is meaningless and incomplete until they get what they want, a spouse. And in many movies, it boldly displays adultery as a way of getting the relationship you want. You covet something that does not belong to you. Oh, beer commercials are designed to make you think, I don't have that many friends, but if I drink a lot of beer, look at all the friends I'll have around me. 
Now, listen, many of the desires we have are good, but God doesn't always provide what we want, and it can tempt us to, to think ill of the Lord. Of, and that's where we can break the third commandment in using his name in vain. Maybe we want to be married. Maybe we want children. But God, in his wise providence, has chosen not to give them, give them to us. God is the one who has determined that. The single person can burn with, with feelings, underlying feelings of resentment and bitterness and jealousy and envy. The couple without children can be resentful of those who do have children. And days like Mother's Day can contempt them to be resentful and bitter. We can find ourselves angry and resentful at our neighbor who is simply enjoying God's provisions, maybe provisions more than we have. These emotions don't promote biblical fellowship, but destroy it. And when we covet, many of our physical and emotional senses become engaged. Emotions like jealousy and envy and fear and anger and hatred and vengeance. Examples abound in the Old Testament of those who have coveted. In, in Joshua 7.21, Achan, if you remember, they, they, they went out and they, they destroyed this city by God's, by God's command. And God said, but do not take any of the spoils. And Achan, he, he, he takes something. He sees a robe and he sees some silver and he takes them. Now, now here's, the, here's the insanity of sin. He takes this robe that, that he stole, this beautiful robe that you would assume he would want to wear, and he buries it in the ground underneath his tent. What good is a robe buried underneath your tent? You don't wear it. And he took the silver, and it, and it appealed to him, and, and God God came, and, and the next time Israel went out to fight, they got beaten soundly, and it was because there was sin in the camp. Achan had disobeyed the Lord. And so, so they go throughout the camp, and they discover, and this is what Achan said. He goes, then I coveted them and took them. He saw them. Oh, that looks good. Oh, that looks great. I mean, that's what commercials are, are they not? Two ladies are at lunch, and this one lady sees another lady walking by with a purse, and then what do you see in the next moment? She's on her phone. And, the next, and that purse is almost like being delivered to her lunch table. She coveted. She wanted it immediately. Ahab, in 1 Kings 21, this, this story, Ahab is king of Israel the northern kingdom, and he's looking out his, his mansion window and he sees a neighbor. And his neighbor is Naboth. And Naboth owns his vineyard. And it's a sweet vineyard. It's a nice vineyard. And so Ahab goes and he says to Naboth, I want to buy your vineyard. And Naboth says, no. Is, you know, the law is that it's family inheritance. It's land that belongs to our family. I can't sell it. God's law makes clear, I can't sell it. No, 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 I'm not selling it to you. 
And it says that Naboth turns him down and, and Ahab keeps making appeals and Naboth turns him down. And finally, Ahab goes back and says he lays on his bed. He turns his face away from his wife, Jezebel, and he pouts. And she says, do you want to eat lunch? No, I don't want to eat lunch. Do you want to eat dinner? No, I don't want to eat dinner. I just want to sit here and have an adult temper tantrum because Naboth won't give me what I want. And so what does he do? Well, his wife, seeing that her husband's coveting something, goes out and starts spreading rumors and lies about Naboth, that he has defamed the name of the Lord. And so what happens? Naboth is charged falsely. So you see another commandment broken, false witness. And he's brought before the elders, and he is stoned to death. And then Ahab gets his property which is stolen, another commandment, broken. You see, coveting. Gehazi, Elisha's servant. Naaman is healed of leprosy. And Naaman, the king, offers Elisha, here, let me give you something for healing. And, and Elisha says, no, 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 I want nothing. And so Naaman takes off, and Gehazi's like, hey, I'm a servant. I'm getting nothing out of this. So he chases after Naaman and says, I'll take something. And he, he gets something. And what he gets in the end is leprosy. He gets Naaman's leprosy. In the New Testament, we have another stunning example of coveting. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. They, they didn't covet money because they had plenty of it. They had land. They sold the land. What they coveted, and if you read early in Acts 5, you see Barnabas brings, the, he sells a piece of land and he brings all the proceeds from the sale of the land and he lays it at the apostles' feet for the, for the gospel to be proclaimed, for the gospel to be advanced. And Ananias and Sapphira see this. And so what do they do? They go and they sell a piece of property, but they keep back some of the proceeds and they bring and they lay it at the apostles' feet because I think Barnabas got accolades. And Ananias and Sapphira coveted being praised. Philip Ryken said this. He said, there's always something envious about coveting. This goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Before Eve took the forbidden fruit, she coveted it. This was not because she admired it as a piece of fruit, but because Satan tempted her to envy by telling her that if she ate it, she would be like God. Eve took the fruit to gain something she was not intended to have. We have been sinning this way ever since. One good place to see this is in a nursery filled with toddlers. Nothing arouses a child's interest in a toy like seeing it in the hands of another child. And the transition from coveting to stealing is almost instantaneous. Adults are subtler when they covet. It's revealed in that little twinge of disappointment whenever someone else gets what we want. It's how we react when a coworker gets a promotion, when our roommate finds romance and we are still single, or when a friend goes where we can only dream of going on vacation. See, coveting material isn't all there is to coveting, to this sin. An area I often observe where, and hear where people are coveting, and 
I doubt they're often aware of it, is when they compare themselves to others. They can become resentful because the other person has traits and attributes, physical attributes they, they don't have. Oh, I wish I had blonde hair. I wish I had dark hair. I wish I had straight hair. I wish I had curly hair. I wish I had hair. I wish I was taller. I have a daughter who is my youngest. She's 5'8". I have another daughter, my middle. She's 5'2". I can't tell you how many times I would hear my 5'2 daughter say, I wish I was taller. I can't tell you how often I've heard my 5'8 daughter say, I wish I was a little bit shorter. One has blonde hair that's straight. The other has blonde hair that's curly. I mean, what? <laughs> I wish I was more athletic. I don't, but I know some of you do. Um, I wish I was smarter. I wish I wasn't physically limited. I wish I was married. I wish I wasn't married. I wish I had children like that who are so obedient all the time. Or it can go even further. Oh, I wish I had a husband or wife like that and not the one I have. That's the essence of coveting. Not being content with what God has given us in his providence, but being jealous and envious of what others have. So that's part one. That was the, the larger part, the essence of coveting. But let's talk about the effects of coveting. The effects or consequences of this sin are significant. It's destructive to our relationship, first and foremost, with God, and it's destructive to our relationship with one another. God installed these commandments to protect us and to preserve his covenant relationship with us and our relationships with one another. The, the effect of coveting upon our relationship with God is, is most tragically, as we read, demonstrated in the Garden of Eden. What happened when Adam and Eve coveted and then disobeyed? Death came immediately to Adam and Eve. Death. Their fellowship with God was irreparably harmed. It was ruined. Sin entered the world. Enmity between one another occurred. Suffering became a part of everyday life. And sadly, humanity's view of God is grossly distorted. All because of coveting. The effect of coveting upon our relationship with God is the saddest of all. No longer do we view God as He should be viewed, as He deserves to be viewed but we see him through the eyes at times of selfishness and pride and resentment and bitterness and anger because we see him as one who does not give us what we want. I've had this long illness and I've prayed and God has not healed me. I have, I have, I've been desirous of being married and God has not brought a spouse. I have desired to have children and God has not brought children. I've been desirous... I've watched more people get promoted past me and I work as hard and long, if not longer than any of them, and yet I have not been promoted. Seems like every time I get just enough money in savings, we have a major expense and I'm back to zero, and yet I see these other people, they go on, oh, let's go to Aruba for the weekend. I can barely get to Rockville for the weekend. 
The, the effects of coveting are destructive. Desmond Alexander, in his commentary, says, Coveting is not only wrong because it reflects a self-centered craving to deprive one's neighbor of something that is an integral part of his or her life, but more importantly, it is an offense to God, for it expresses criticism of how he provides for each individual. Get that? When we covet and we complain, What we do, we express criticism for God's providence. For how God provides for us. God, this is not enough. I wanted more. I think I deserve more. I expected more. What is your problem? Ultimately, at at the center of our covetous desire is is a displeasure with God. Now, if you believe in the sovereignty of God and you say you trust his providential care, but, but get angry and resentful and bitter like Ahab and you have internal temper tantrums, and you understand what an internal temper tantrum is, It's the mumbling and the grumbling that goes on in the heart. Why did God do that for them? Why didn't God do that for me? Why doesn't God hear my prayers the way they hear their prayers? I mean, just on and on. These attitudes make a loud statement that God is not good. He doesn't care. He doesn't provide. He doesn't want what's best for me because he hasn't given me what I want and think I need. And this, this false belief system about who God is damages us and our relationship with him. Listen, our lives, our lives are to be anchored in trust and belief in God's good character. God's good and proven character, his mercy and his goodness and his love and his faithfulness and his his kindness and his provision and his care for the very children that he loves. Each time we covet and we complain in our hearts, we, we mock God's loving and sacrificial gift of his son, Jesus Christ. What, what greater provision, what greater provision and gift and expression of love and mercy and kindness and goodness and faithfulness could there be than God sending his own son to bear our sin on the cross, to die for our sin, to suffer for our sin? What greater gift of God's provision could there be than that? There isn't. And all done because God loves us. And when we covet and complain, we mock God's provision. Coveting also not only affects our relationship with God, it affects 
our, our church. It affects our family here. It affects our, our families at home. It affects our families in, in this community. We watch our children, and as you know, they, they covet things that they see their brothers and sisters getting. Or we covet things we want and see others in our church experiencing. And sometimes it can go so evil. We covet a neighbor's spouse and adultery ensues and God's name is dishonored and families are destroyed. That's the effect of coveting. We cover a neighbor's property and something is stolen. On a few occasions... I've had certain golf clubs stolen out of my golf bag while I'm inside the golf shop. Somebody just walks by, oh, I like that club, pulls it out. They covet it, they saw. We covet a certain reputation. So we elevate ourselves by destroying our neighbor through false witness. The effects of coveting are tragic. Adam and Eve, death and separation. Achan, death. Ahab, death. Gehazi, leprosy. Ananias and Sapphira, death. That's the effects of coveting. But finally, part three. There is an escape, our escape, from coveting. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, it is sadly true that even a Christian may grow by degrees so callous that the sin which once startled him does not alarm him in the least. And he says this, by degrees, men get familiar with sin. The inundation of commercials and movies and just... The, the materialistic society we live in. And material things are not bad. I have golf clubs. I have a house. I like material things. They're not, they're not inherently evil. Money is not inherently evil. It's the love of money that is inherently evil. But, but money is not evil. But, but we can grow so familiar with the kind of wanting that goes around us when we see it on commercials and we see it on, on, in movies and, and we read it in magazines or books or online or whatever, we get inundated with that and we can grow familiar with it. And the, the, the sin that should startle us just has become commonplace. It doesn't take much to drift towards a familiarity with sin, especially one that is so invisible in a sense. But know this. The mercy of God looms large in our world. In a world where we face this temptation every day. The mercy of God looms large. That mercy is on display in our lives through, through God's word 
that he gives us to protect us, to God's word to help us discern what is good and what is evil, God's word to help us understand the difference between what is right and what is wrong, God's word that gives us these wonderful commandments, these laws, these laws that were fulfilled by Christ, not abolished by Christ, these laws that help remind us how we are to protect and guard ourselves first and foremost, and then guard our families. That mercy abounds to us, and it reminds us that we belong to God, not the devil, not the world. We belong to Christ. The Bible, these words are here to protect the joy of our salvation, brothers and sisters. That's what they're here to protect. God loves us and he fights for us and he protects us and he has shown the way of escape. He has shown a way of escape for us that we might know when we are faced with this kind of temptation, when we are faced with coveting and most typically the person who is most aware of coveting is the one who is coveting. Be aware. There is a way of escape. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. When you're tempted to covet, there is a way of escape. And there are many precious remedies in God's word to guard you and to protect you from the sin that can easily entangle you and weigh you down. There are many precious remedies. There is grace that we find in God's word. Jeremiah Burroughs said this. Now, Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a book Most of you have heard that name, and most of you, I'm sure some of you have read the book. It's called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Has anybody read that book out of curiosity? Okay, what's the the key word in in that title? Rare. (laughs) The rare jewel of Christian contentment. Burroughs is on to something. Contentment takes work. He said, I find a sufficiency of satisfaction in my own heart through the grace of Christ that is in me. It's grace. Though I have not outward comforts and worldly conveniences to supply my necessities, yet I have a sufficient portion between Christ and my soul abundantly to satisfy me in every condition. Grace. That's, that's the first way of escape. It's just to be reminded of the grace of God. Secondly, perseverance. Hebrews 13, 5, the writer of Hebrews says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The, the, the operative word there is keep. Keep your life free. It takes perseverance. The writer of Proverbs, Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for from it flow the wellsprings of life. Above all else, guard and keep. 
It takes perseverance. And that's where in 10.13 it says that God will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. It doesn't say that it will disappear, but that you will endure it, that you'll be able to say no to it. And then just simply taking up your cross, pursuing Christ. Philippians 4, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There's a way of escape. It's just your daily growth as a believer. Learning. Learning, learning God's Word. And finally, just the pursuit of godliness. 1 Timothy 6, now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. There is great gain in godliness with contentment. You want to battle coveting? You want to, you want to be able to stand against this temptation, I would encourage you, memorize Matthew 6, 33. First, first verse I ever memorized as a Christian, Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You know, in Psalm 73, Asaph struggled. He saw all those around him. He saw the unbelievers just prospering. Why do the wicked prosper is what he cried out. And he's, he's seeing they, they don't have bad days. They don't have troubles. They have what they need. I mean, all these things are provided for them. But then he, he comes to the reality of his relationship with God. And this is what Asaph's response to his temptation to covet is. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's none upon the earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart will fail, but God is the strength of my life. Beloved, it's in Christ alone where we find and enjoy contentment.